Welcome back, Fly fans, to another episode in Season 13 of the podcast. Uh, Robin, could you believe it's Season 13 already? I know. It feels like just yesterday we were operating completely on Zoom, and it's been really exciting to see the Fly grow with our new name, new format, in-person interviews. It's been fantastic. I know, and uh, I guess it's a return to form for us because uh, we conducted another interview on Zoom uh, because our guest for today was Peter Hamby. Uh, Can you tell the audience about who Peter Hamby is, Robin? Yeah, Peter Hamby is a Georgetown alum, um, graduated from the college in 2003, but um, he is a journalist uh, who has worked at CNN for a decade before joining um, Snapchat as the host of Good Luck America. Um, which reports on politics with a focus um, for Gen Z and millennial audiences. He's also a contributing writer at Vanity Fair and also a partner at Puck, which is a new uh, journalism startup that reports on the four power centers in America. Yeah, that's really interesting bio. And I'm really glad I got to do this episode, at least one episode this season before spring break. It's really nice to do some podcast work right before we take a long break. Isn't that right, Robin? No, yeah, for sure. Um, I don't know if you're going anywhere. Uh, I'll be traveling to Portugal soon, which I'm really excited about. Um, You know, Peter also sat down and talked to us about his experience abroad in South Africa. So this was just a really interesting, all-encompassing conversation. Yeah, I guess with that, uh, let's go right into the interview. Welcome. So, Peter Hamby, thank you so much for sitting down with Kelvin and I this afternoon um, to just talk to us on the fly about your career and your perspectives in journalism. It's great to be here. Go Hoyas. Yeah, Goyas Axa. Um, so, I guess we'll start off with just looking at, you know, your time. First of all, you started off as a Hoya at Georgetown, and we noticed that you had a brief study abroad period in um, Cape Town. So, why South Africa? Um, do you want to go back and what is that role in your career? I love that you asked that question first. My fiance and I are actually going back for uh, our honeymoon uh, this summer. Um, we're getting married and then going to South Africa for two weeks. And I haven't been back since I studied abroad. Uh, yeah, I went to Cape Town for a semester my junior year. I had decided actually to pursue a certificate through SFS. I don't know if you can still do this. Um in African studies. And so I was in the college, I was an English major. And then I did an African studies certificate um, through SFS. But my dad, um, I, both my parents, and this is one reason I got into journalism, were um, TV news people. Uh, and that's how they met in Washington, actually, working for a couple of local uh, stations in DC. And then my dad got into advertising and public relations. And right after apartheid ended, um, uh, or actually right after Mandela got elected, I think 94, my dad went over to South Africa for the first time because he was helping launch a airline that was basically designed to open up South Africa to the world. And they were, it was the first direct flight from Atlanta to Johannesburg at the time. And so my dad spent all this time over in South Africa, you know, helping market, you know, the startup airline. It didn't eventually work out, but he always wanted to take his family back. And we were lucky enough, right after I graduated high school, my family, my brothers and I, and another close family friends uh, did two weeks traveling through Southern Africa. And so, you know, when I got to college, I was like, I have to go back. I have to figure out a way to go back. And really my study abroad experience was, um, you know, 
but my sorry my african studies ex like goal was to get back to <laughs> uh south africa specifically cape town um and it was magical honestly and i feel like i've spent a lot of my adult life talking about how wonderful it was but i've gradually like lost touch with my knowledge like i used to be an expert in all of the culture and politics and whatever i wrote my like thesis on south african labor unions <laughs> for my certificate but i realized i don't know that much about south africa anymore um and so i've been reading because we're going back a bunch of books lately and rereading a few books um and i'm so excited to go back i can't believe it yeah, we really love your enthusiasm for it we we decided to eventually like ask you the question because it's an aspect of your career that's kind of international so we don't really hear you talk about it all that much uh yeah but from there, we're interested in uh, your time at CNN. Specifically, uh, how do we see your time and experience at CNN, like in your work uh, currently at Puck and Good Luck America? And how do you think it's influenced uh, your work in general? I mean, I see, I'm so grateful to CNN. I mean, I started there, um, I went to uh, Georgetown, and then I went to journalism school at NYU and got a master's in journalism. And you know, like most journalism students graduated with a lot of debt. <laughs> and through a friend of a friend, I like got a resume in front of somebody at CNN back in 2005, and started out as a news assistant in the Washington Bureau at CNN, which was, um, you know, basically like a step above an intern, you're paid by the hour, but you don't have health care. Um, and you do things like you run teleprompter for shows, and you're, you know, you put microphones on different politicians in the green room, but it was a great foot in the door and got me to understand all aspects of how various things at CNN come together from doing packages to doing live producing and shows, etc. And, you know, to answer your question, CNN taught me a lot about how Washington and institutional media works, how politics works, and they gave me some great breaks. I mean, like Stan Feist, the bureau chief, still there. Um, he's also a Georgetown alum, law school you know, he got me a job as a campaign embed, like an embedded producer reporter on the 2008 campaign. And I was living in South Carolina for the 2008 presidential primary, which was epic. It was, you know, Obama, Hillary on the Dem side. It was McCain and Huckabee and um, Romney on the Republican side. And I learned a lot about party politics, just being on the ground. And then they sent me all over the country, like traveling with Hillary and McCain and Palin, like throughout the 2008 campaign. And it just really, really got me addicted to um, campaigns. Uh, and it can be an addiction, <laughs> I must say, but uh, their willingness to, you know, let me go around the country and, and grew me into being like a, a reporter, which I eventually was on air, you know, it, it really taught me a lot um, and gave me perspective outside of like the cultural bubble of Washington. A lot of people cover politics in DC and really kind of don't leave DC that much. You know, they cover Capitol Hill, White House, whatever. Um, my experience at, at CNN was covering politics from the outside in. I, I knew more people in different state capitals than I did in the US Capitol at certain points, which is really useful when you have lots of governors running for president one day, et cetera. Um, you know, and I could go on and on about how wonderful my experience was there. And I was there for 10 years. Um, but like, I do think today, and this is something else we can talk about, you know, there are just some like fundamentals of journalism that I feel like have gotten lost, especially during the Trump years. 
And I try to hew pretty closely to, you know, a lot of the habits and rituals and standards that got me into this place. Sorry, that got me into, you know, journalism in the first place. Like I care about facts. I care about rigorous reporting. I care about in-depth journalism rather than hot takes and clickbait. I care about good writing, um, you know, and CNN, you know, while it wasn't a print organization, just really, and people might not think this about cable news today, but at the time it was like, you know, if you broke a story, you had to go through a chain of command and get it approved and have good sources. And then, then only then would you get to post it or put it on television rather than today where anyone can just post any random piece of trash on social media and watch it go viral. And so, um, you know, they just gave me a lot of chances. And, and one reason I ended up at Snapchat, which is one of the best decisions I ever made, was because the digital side of CNN also gave me a bunch of chances and let me write for the website and create digital content at a time when like people didn't really care that much about digital in mainstream media. And by that, I mean the decision makers, the CEOs, the bureau chiefs, the editors, you know, the main like vehicles of, of media and journalism at the time when I was starting out were print newspapers and television. Social media wasn't a thing. I remember pitching a senior producer on the Situation Room, the show I worked on at CNN, about this startup called Twitter that some politicians were starting to use in 2006 and 2007 when it was super early. And this producer looked up at me, you know, and, and gave me one second of his time and said, never say the word Twitter around me ever again. And shut me down. And I was like, okay, I guess no one cares about this. And then fast forward like three or four years and it's like the dominant form of social media for journalists and people in politics. Um, so, you know, there were downsides to CNN too, but you know, they gave me a lot of chances that led me to where I am today. Yeah, that sounds like a really incredible experience. So um, just touching on something that you mentioned, um, you wanted to focus on the facts in your journalism and not um, focus too much, you know, on clickbait. Um, but looking at, you know, Snapchat is filled with a lot of content that could be mm -hmm. just clickbait. So how do you balance, especially with Good Luck America, you know, making news and politics attractive to young people who might be on Snapchat um, to want to go into it, but not, um, you know, reducing it to something like reality TV or something that's just clickbait. Yeah, no, and that's a fair observation for sure. I mean, uh, you can open Snapchat at any given moment and see a lot about, you know, Livy Dunn or the Kardashians. Um, but I will say this, and this is this has been true for a long time in media in its various forms. There has always been a um, a balance between what people want and what people need. Um, and most people in the world don't really follow the news. They don't really follow politics. Like that's just uh, like us dorks who Georgetown people like love this stuff. Most people don't. Um, when I was growing up, again, my parents worked in local news. We would always watch local news in Richmond, Virginia, and then the evening news, CBS evening news, usually growing up for whatever reason. But then, you know, what comes on after that is Access Hollywood and Entertainment Tonight. <laughs> um, if you go to a newsstand at the airport uh, or you pass one on the street in New York or LA or DC, all the magazines are like sports, guns, celebrity, whatever. And then there's like a little smaller section of news. And so on Snapchat, kind of think about it that way where people are coming to Snapchat to be entertained. They're coming to have fun with their friends, to chat with their friends, 
you know, but they're also there to, to you know, learn about the world and whatever their interests are. Their interests could be music, fashion, whatever. That's fine. My goal hosting a politics show on Snapchat and my, my mission when I was hired there was to find a way to make news not feel like spinach, not feel like homework, to make it somewhat entertaining. And so this is actually like a tension in my career that I feel because I'm glad you brought it up. Like as much as I care about the values of journalism, um, I also work for a place and care about reaching people and reaching a public that doesn't follow the news that much. And sometimes that means being a little entertaining. Um, you know, there are plenty of stories we've done. Dude, most stories we do are serious, but like we try to leaven them with some humor. Um, we try to, yes, grab people with a picture and a headline so they click on the story. Um, but I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. Like if you can compete for attention with politics, you know, uh, against all other forms of entertainment media and you grab just 10% of those people and make them understand that there's an election coming up or help them understand what's happening in Ukraine or help them understand what inflation is, you know, um, that's okay. And I, I really think that a, a larger challenge in American political journalism is that too many journalists talk to each other and try to impress their fellow college-educated elites who live in New York and DC. Um, and they don't think about um, people who aren't addicted to the stuff and who don't follow it every day. And I think that's really, really important. Like people in news need to think about the audience first and how do you compete for attention against Netflix and TikTok and Hulu and your text messages and WhatsApp. You know, that's, it's all competing with everything else. There's not, I'm not competing against only TikTok. CNN isn't competing against only Fox News. Like everyone's competing with everyone for attention at all times. You have to find a way to get in there. Um, if you think of journalism as a, as a calling and a public service, you have to figure out how to reach the public in the first place. And, you know, there's not a lot of interest out there in reading a 10,000 word black and white text article in the New York Times. People are way more interested in video content and podcasts, for example, um, than you know, sitting down with a newspaper every day. And like some, some people in journalism might think that's sad and say that people need to do better. Um, I don't think that way. I think that we need to be a little more generous um, toward the public and news consumers and make um, journalism compelling, portable, sometimes entertaining. Uh, and that's okay while hewing closely to, you know, the facts and, you know, wherever they lead, you know, that's, that's the thing that's attention because as much as I try to grab people, I'm also presenting a series of facts and information and research to people. A lot of people on other platforms, like you could get, you can get someone's attention on TikTok and just jam a bunch of junk news down their throat, you know? And um, I get that a lot of consumers might not see the differences between those things, but at least I, I hear from people who watch my show and we have like two and a half million subscribers but they at least trust me because I'm willing to call balls and strikes. And, you know, um, I'm not just partisan one way or the other. And I think there's a hunger for that kind of stuff out there these days. Like it's just the world feels like it's filled with partisanship and noise. And I just want someone who can be honest with me. And I think that's sort of what I try to do. We actually want to zoom a bit closer into some of the nuance you just touched with that statement. Yeah. It's clear to see that uh, you've thought a lot about that answer and about that entire subject clearly due to the nature of your job. But you mentioned that you see a lot of 
uh, cheap hot takes, but also quality content just due to the size of these platforms and that a lot of platforms have this, like whether it's television, YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, TikTok. Yeah. Uh, our question for you is what makes Snapchat unique as compared to like these other platforms where people can receive this type of political content that makes you not just like that did not just make you go there originally, but makes you stay yeah. there as well. That's a great question. Um, and literally when I, when Snapchat first approached me, I was still at CNN. I sort of snuck out to LA to interview with the CEO and he made very clear that, I don't know if you guys remember this. Do you remember like, but I assume you guys were on Snapchat in high school. Do you remember when we had those like big stories where it could be like a day in the life of Paris or like, you know, the, or Coachella. And like, basically it was like all of these curated um, user generated videos, basically people on Snapchat from around the world would send our story and then we would curate it and like blast it out to the world. It was really cool way to see like an on the ground experience of a large event. And Evan, our CEO founder was like, I love this technology, but I'm worried that unless we hire journalists to curate it, um, it's not going to be responsible. <laughs> and compared to other tech CEOs, especially in hindsight, who care more about, you know, using an algorithm to reach as many people as possible based on their interests, based on vacuuming up their data, it was clear that Evan and Snapchat were serious about curating the content. Uh, that's led us to where we are today, where we have media partnerships. So like the Washington Post, NBC News, SportsCenter, BuzzFeed, um, you know, my show, uh, but also like Pod Save America, Ben Shapiro, like lots of um, content is on Discover and on Snapchat, but it's all curated. In other words, any bad actor can't just post and watch it go viral. Part of that is the architecture of Snapchat and the platform, right? As you know, it's designed to communicate with your best friends. And so unlike Instagram where you post and like, you know, everyone can see it and like you, you know, uh, success is measured by likes and engagement. Like most of people using Snapchat are just talking to their friends, you know, and that could mean they're flirting with one of their, someone they have a crush on. It could mean that they're using a funny filter and sending it to their friends. It could mean a variety of things. And then on the discover side, because we only work with like trusted news partners and we employ a variety of um, standards and, and terms of service for people who are allowed to post in discover and have uh, publisher deals within discover. Um, that's how we sort of monitor uh, bad information basically and prevent it. And no other platform really does that. Yes, there's content moderation, but that doesn't really work at scale. I mean, Facebook can only moderate so much content. In other words, it can only have so many staffers flagging so many videos that are inappropriate or dangerous or violate their trust and safety protocols. Um, but because of the way Snapchat is designed and because of the choices we made from the very beginning, we don't have the disinformation, misinformation problems that other platforms do. A good example of this is. Um, group chats. So like um, we made a decision to, um, unlike some other platforms with group chats, you can't have hundreds of people like inside a single group chat. I think we limited it to like a couple dozen or something, like just your friends. Um, we've seen bad um, outcomes from this uh, in other countries where people use WhatsApp to literally organize, um, you know, 
hate crimes and pogroms and whatever, uh, because there's so many people you can fit in a WhatsApp chain and be like, we're all going to this town or we're all, everyone look at this like meme. Uh, and so again, that's a choice we made to limit the size of um, chats to inhibit sort of bad behaviors. And we're always evolving and we're not perfect, et cetera, but it's just been very clear throughout my time here. And the reason I'm still here is we care about those things in a way that other platforms don't. And I, you know, I wish we got more attention and more praise for it, quite frankly. Snapchat is almost twice as big as Twitter in terms of daily active users. We are almost 100% saturation in the United States among people under the age of 30. Um, but we don't get a lot of credit for doing positive things in the, uh, in the tech press or in Washington. Um, you know, again, we have challenges, but I, I really think we're doing some of the right things. Yeah, and so you mentioned that Snapchat's always evolving. And so how has Snapchat evolved since you started um, there seven years ago? And what do you think the uh, future of Snapchat and Good Luck America looks like? I mean, the biggest change is, um, I mean, from my perspective, at least working in content, is the nature of content has changed a lot. You know, when we started, I mean, remember Instagram stole copied stories from Snapchat back in the day. Uh, was that like 2017 maybe um and you know we had to pivot a little bit and develop new kinds of content experiences for people um discover where you know that's like we have premium shows now right you could go on snapchat and watch uh my show or sports center or whatever uh and then you know we've decided we've like made it i mean this is just a very like tech sounding thing to say but we don't really sit still. It's like, okay, we have stories. Everything's good. You know, like the Instagram taking stories is a good example of how you can never sit still working for a tech platform because there's always going to be a competitor. There's always someone bigger than you and smaller than you coming up from behind. And so now like our various content experiences from a creative perspective, but also like a consumer perspective, we have spotlight, you know, which is sort of a scrolling experience, kind of like TikTok that's actually really taking off around the world. We have, um, you know, creator stories uh, where I, Peter, can just sort of post a story uh, to people um, who follow me. And again, like that's for people who are verified creators, not just, you know, Joe Schmo from 4chan. Um, and then we also have, you know, Discover. So like, it's just the content side of things has evolved a lot. The other thing, the other thing too is when I started, it was 2015. Uh, now it's 2023. Um, People watching my show are like older than you guys now. <laughs> uh, you know, when I started, I, I bump into people all the time who are like, I watched you back in 2016 or I watched you back in 2020. Um, you know, like, I'm like, I'm still around. It's just like a new generation kind of ages into it from the bottom up because, you know, you turn 13, 14, you want to get on Snapchat and like talk to your friends. And then all of a sudden this politics show is there. Um, and so, you know, it, it's it's becoming actually kind of gratifying. It makes me feel old. Like I have a little gray hair now, but like when someone comes up to me and they're like, oh, I started watching you when I was in high school and they're like out of college now or something. I'm like, whoa. <laughs> but again, that makes me feel good because I've, I think at least been providing healthy, credible political news um, for, you know, the younger generation that I think is kind of still searching for it. We actually find that like uh, that comment about like how you have a generational audience that kind of grows out of it and into it, uh, particularly interesting, yeah. uh, which leads us to our next question. Uh, 
how have you found like traditional media slash political media to interact with you slash treat you ever since you've gotten big on Snapchat? Like, have they gotten with the curve and gone on to like other social media platforms? Do we still let those grumpy old guys talking about uh, how Twitter is never going to pan out? Uh, yeah. So how has the bigger media interest industry interacted with you? And do they see your platform as kind of like a gateway drug to like other types of political media? I think, you know, establishment media, um, let's call them media organizations, like the big newspapers, news, like, you know, New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, Politico, um, and then the TV network, you know, they, I think they've all come a long way and they realize um, the audience, like, they should realize more people are spending time with their phone screens these days than their TV screens. I mean, that's true. It's backed up by every trend, fact, piece of data. Um, and it's an audience that's harder to monetize um, because, you know, it, people's attention spans are short. But I do think institutional media has come a long way in terms of wanting to publish on different platforms. I think they have a right to be wary of tech platforms. Um, Facebook is a good example of a company that has promised um, media companies and news organizations a lot of carrots over the years and then quickly changed strat strategies and left media companies in the lurch. And they're like, why do we keep, we keep having to post on TikTok. We keep having to post on Instagram. What's coming of it? Um, I think we've been, we've been a long and steady partner for a lot of like media organizations. Um, you know, NBC News has a show called Stay Tuned that started right after mine uh, back in 2016, 2017, I think. And they, you know, are hitting five, six, seven, eight million people a week with their show. I mean, compare that to, you know, the Today Show, which is on NBC television, which is four million people probably every day. Um, you know, these are not insignificant numbers of people and being on new platforms helps, for example, a TV news organization where the average viewer is over the age of 55 reach, you know, younger eyeballs, which they need um, because people aren't sitting down in front of the TV every night in the fireplace with their TV dinners to watch Walter Cronkite. <laughs> uh, and so I think news organizations have come a long way. I do think that like individually, I often encounter people you know who seem very smug about new media and digital media um like and don't understand snapchat uh those people are actually like toxic for journalism i think i mean you have to be extremely open-minded about formats that reach people it's sort of what i was saying in my first answer to you guys like you have to think about the audience first like if you don't understand that there's news content on snapchat that reaches millions of people if you sneer at that, like you're the problem, <laughs> like people aren't going to like sit down and like, like read your long, boring article. You have to like figure out ways to make that long, boring article uh, into a bunch of different formats to reach people. Um, this is a common example, but like the daily is a great example of this. Like the New York Times made a decision to basically like, you know, create a new format where I call it like, like deconstructed. Like you go to a restaurant and there's like a deconstructed salad or like deconstructed guacamole or something like that. Like basically they broke down a story, a piece of journalism into its constituent parts, the reporting, the sourcing, you know, the facts, the analysis, and like recontextualized it into a piece of audio that feels compelling. It feels like a story. It feels entertaining, you know? And so there are lots of people 
who, given the choice, would rather listen to Michael Barbaro or Sabrina talk about what's happening in Ukraine for 20 minutes than spend 10 minutes sitting down reading like their screen and reading the text. You know, which one would you choose? I'd choose the podcast version of that every day out of the week. Um, and I think most people would too. And I, you know, if you work in journalism and you're not open to new formats at this point, like you might need to, uh, I don't know, call it a day. There's plenty of other jobs in PR you can take. <laughs> no, yeah, that's um, a lot of really interesting insight in Snapchat. Um, just pivoting to your career a little bit as a journalist. Um, so you mentioned this a little bit earlier, but you've interviewed uh, politicians ranging from Hillary Clinton to, I know Lindsey Graham was on uh, Good Look America. So oh, yes. What is your most memorable interview? Was there an interview that really surprised you? Um, there's a surprising fact I feel like people might enjoy, which is the politician who's been on my show the most is our 80 year old president, Joe Biden. <laughs> I, got, I interviewed him when he was vice president for Snapchat. I interviewed him uh, when he was running for president. I interviewed him before, you know, in that little in-between period when he left the White House and before he ran for president. Um, you know, by the way, I've talked to Biden about this. Like he respect, I'm, I'm trying not to sound vain, but like, I know he respects me as a journalist because I've done the work and like, he's read things I've written. I used to write for Vanity Fair and now I write for Pop, uh, which everyone should look up and subscribe to if you can afford it. Um, you know, and he, Biden respects journalists who are fair and do the work and don't just shout gotcha questions at him, which you see a lot in the way. Briefing room, you know, with any president, that's true, but it's kind of a silly routine. Um, so that's one thing. Like Biden has always been solicitous toward me. And it's, it's it, he, you know, and like a lot of politicians, this has proven true. This happened when I first started working in Snapchat and people were like, what? Like, imagine leaving CNN in 2015 and going over Snapchat. People in politics did not get it. Um, the first two politicians who wanted to do interviews and Snapchat stuff with me were pretty boring politicians, quite frankly, like Scott Walker, who was running for president back then, uh, the former Wisconsin governor, and John Kasich, another former uh, Midwestern governor from Ohio, both Republicans. They're kids use Snapchat. So they got it. Like, it was just like, if you are around teenagers, like you understand the power of it. Um, Bernie's campaign back in 2015 and 2016 was really eager to do Snapchat in a way that Hillary's campaign wasn't because they understood that like their base was young people. Um, Obama's done uh, my show twice. Um, but you know, uh, it's, it's hard to think of a like great they're, all of my interviews have been fun and interesting in one way or another. I always try to ask people questions. This gets back to what I've been saying throughout this whole podcast that normal people care about. Um, I know normal people is a vague term, but like if I have somebody, a politician on, I'd much rather ask them something that would feel relatable to a person who doesn't follow politics, who doesn't follow politics day to day than like a question about the debt ceiling or the latest negotiations around Build Back Better. Like let the DC media do that. Um, a good example, when I had Anthony Fauci on, uh, probably like April or May of 2020, like the height of the early COVID era, the questions I asked him weren't like, when is the, like, what is it like with Trump? Like, what is Deborah Burke saying, blah, blah, blah. Like, yeah, I asked some of that stuff. I also asked like, 
when do you feel like it'll be safe to for people to go back to stadiums and like go to a baseball game when is it okay for people to be on like tinder and hinge and grinder during a pandemic you know uh those questions made news. Like they were everywhere. They were on sports center because they were things that would, you know, resonate with somebody who uh, doesn't live in Washington. <laughs> no offense. Cause I lived in Washington for a long time, but that's sort of how it that's, you know, in that sense, a lot of my interviews have been pretty rewarding because I think politicians too, and elected officials think it's kind of refreshing when you ask them things that they don't hear every day from the, from the DC media. Yeah, that was pretty insightful. Uh, we just want to say you've already done a great job of plugging Puck a couple of times. We just <laughs> wanted to ask you a bit further about it. Uh, what made you and other journalists think that uh, creating like a subscription-based uh, platform was a... Uh, what made you and other journalists think that now was the time for a subscription base uh, platform? And in what way is this kind of a reaction to the changing landscape of journalism? And what do you think other outlets can learn from uh, your approach to Puck? So I think the Puck's creation that was actually a response to the changing landscape of journalism, both on the business side and the content side. And first of all, shout out to John Kelly, who founded Puck. Um, I and I'm still working at Snapchat full time, but um, back in like right after Trump took office, John Kelly, who was an editor at Vanity Fair uh, and, and on their website approached me about writing for them. And I'd written for CNN uh, about politics for a long time. I love writing. You know, I like I went to journalism school to do magazine writing. And that's weird that I ended up like working in digital media. But um, it was kind of a he was like, he really appreciated my insights generally. We had some mutual friends. He's like, write a column every now and then for Vanity Fair. Um, and I did, and it was, I loved it. And fast forward a few years, like he left Vanity Fair and saw a problem, um, which, you know, it's pretty obvious now, but um, ad supported media. So basically like if you go on, um, you know, any local news website, Huffington Post, whatever, <laughs> you see a bunch of ads uh, on the webpage. And, you know, eventually I'm sure you've had this experience. If you go on a website and there's just pop-up ads and like the things on the screen, like CNN.com frankly looks like this sometimes. And it's because in digital media, traditionally, and this is the original sin of digital media, quite frankly, you make money off of advertising. And that means you have to maximize attention. And that's what gave us the whole clickbait economy. The more people going to your website, originally through search, then through social media, more eyeballs were on your website, and the more you could sell ad space to Coca-Cola, Pepsi, Buick, whatever. And it got to be at a place where that just corroded the quality of the content. Yes, there was really great reporting you know, at any given uh, website, but it had to coexist with like five skincare routines that are guaranteed to like make you look hot this summer, you know? And that, you know, the, the skincare one is always going to get more eyeballs than the like triple byline investigation into the, you know, corruption at X department. And so John was basically like, let's um, create a news organization that's a new business model um, that puts journalists first. And he, you know, reached out to a bunch of my now colleagues um, who 
had expertise on various beats like Matt Bellany covers Hollywood, Julia Yaffe covers foreign policy and diplomacy and has been amazing on Ukraine and Russia over the last year. Um, those are two good examples, you know, me with politics. And like where all of us are at a stage in our career where we had followings and that could mean our followers on Twitter. It could mean that we sent our stories out to an email list of sources and friends and family for years and years. And John was just like, let's figure out a way to help you guys and help us like monetize your followings. Like you guys give away your stuff for free. Like every time you tweet, you're giving away insight for free to people on the internet. And like, that's not fair. Like influencers, like, you know, whether they're hawking like dog food or like skims dresses or whatever, like they're getting paid or compensated for the content they're creating. And like journalists should be doing that too. And also outside of the brands of these large news organizations too, like there are, I'm trying to think of a good example, Maggie Haberman at the New York Times, good example. Maggie is a bigger brand in journalism than the New York Times. In other words, she doesn't, the New York Times needs her more than she needs them. <laughs> and so again, like she's great and like no disrespect to the Times, but it's true. Like a lot of individual journalists and their bylines, people follow the individual journalists because they trust them or they've developed or some sort of trust with them over the years. This can also work in a bad way too, where you have, you know, junk peddlers on the internet who have followings as well. But, you know, we took a risk, you know, walked off the plank and we're like, let's do this. Like, let's see if there's a market for subscription-based journalism that covers, in Puck's case, the big power centers of America. And so this is where it's like the total opposite of Snapchat. Puck covers Hollywood, Silicon Valley, Wall Street, and DC, you know, and covers sort of what Vanity Fair set out to cover in, uh, a long time ago, which is like what the elites are doing. And like, we provide real insight into what's going on in green rooms and, you know, uh, you know, in agent, talent agencies on Wall Street, et cetera. And it's been really successful. Um, and a, a byproduct of all of this is that because we have people who are paying for us, we understand they trust us and like us. I think we're more willing to just sort of like tell the truth, um, say the quiet part out loud is another way to put it. Like, I think a lot of journalists are kind of afraid to say things because one, they'll burn their sources. Uh, two, because the Greek chorus of angry people on social media might scold them for telling the truth. <laughs> um, partisans, uh, you know, like don't like to read things that they disagree with or that challenge their worldview. We don't have to worry about that as much um, because it's like, oh, you don't like us, don't pay for it, but we're telling you the truth. And it's been great. I love it. It's awesome. Again, because I, you know, Snapchat is my main job, but it's nice to do some writing on the side. Um, and I also like you guys host a podcast now called the powers that be everyone subscribe. You're, you're really good on these plugs, but uh, <laughs> thanks for all of those uh, great answers. We actually want to take you to the end of our podcast. It's kind of a tradition called okay. the lightning round. Where right. we ask quick questions and hopefully get some quick answers in return. Uh, are you ready? I'm ready. Go. <laughs> it's great. You didn't really have much of a choice, but I'm glad you're being a good sport. Uh, so behind you, uh, you can't see this audience, but uh, there's a huge bookshelf with uh, a bunch of books uh, that uh, Peter's acquired over the years. So what's your favorite book on that bookshelf and um, what's it about? 
Um, you can't see here, but there's a bookshelf to my left also. And I'll pull this book off. Uh, this is The Powers That Be. Uh, this is what I named my podcast after. Um, a journalist that I love and I feel like is forgotten these days that people listening to this should read. His name is David Halberstam. He became famous covering Vietnam. Um, he also wrote books about Michael Jordan. He wrote a book about the auto industry. Uh, and he, you know, some of them are pretty thick, as you can see. Um, but this book is about uh, CBS News, the Los Angeles Times, the Washington Post, and Time Magazine, and the people that founded those big news organizations, why they did, uh, and, you know, what it meant for American society. He also has, like, a really good book called The 50s, which is, like, a great history of a decade that we kind of forget that, like, really shaped the future of the country. Um, all that is to say, like, I never met the guy, but, like, he writes so well. Like, again, I, like, he just really pulls you into whatever he's writing about, and this is like a Bible for me. It's a great, great book. It's a great lesson in history. It's a great media story. And it's a great lesson in like how to be both a great reporter, but also a great writer. And a lot of reporters aren't good writers and a lot of good writers aren't good reporters. Like he's both. Yeah, I'm looking up, looking for books for spring break. So I'll definitely look into getting a copy. Um, yeah. Next question, any predictions for March Madness? I think this is like one of the like, some people say this a lot lately because of the transfer portal, but there's a lot of parody in this tournament. Like a good example, like I was watching, I was at home in Richmond over the weekend watching some basketball with my dad and like, you know, Alabama, right? Like their star player, like might not be on the team because of a gun charge. <laughs> UConn started out the season really strong, kind of streaky. But when I was watching them, I was like, holy shit, these guys are good and tall. And I really hate UConn for the record. Um, uh, like that Michigan State Iowa game, like it's just as we come down to the wire, UVA lost to Carolina. That's not a good example. Like it's it's just a wide open tournament, and it's just increasingly like that. I feel like these days, like even five ten years ago, you had your powerhouses. When I was at Georgetown, you definitely had your powerhouses. But you know the Kentucky Duke teams, like you know those, like UCLA is a good example. I really like UCLA, not just because I live in LA now, but their coach used to be at Cincinnati where my dad went to college. Um, you know, they feel like a credible contender, but like, you know, if they get the wrong seed, they could lose. I don't know. It's just like, it's totally wide open. So anyone who's making predictions on any of this stuff shouldn't and just sit back and enjoy what Mark Madness is, which is anything can happen. Awesome. And our final question for the lightning round is uh, no explanation required. What is your favorite Georgetown tradition? It's a really good question. Um, Midnight Madness. Uh, I, I mean, again, I love college basketball, but when I was a senior, I don't know if you guys still have this. I played in the students versus faculty basketball game. Do you have that? No. I've never oh. heard of it. Um, oh man, you got I'm not in that sphere. If it died, but I don't know. If it's they got to bring this back. Freshman year. So basically, like a when you're a senior. So I don't know how my friend got involved with this, but like they got to be the coach of the team, uh, probably through student government some way and like draft, draft like 16 seniors to play against a bunch of faculty members. Uh, and it was like, you know, not a long game, but it was like at one point in Midnight Madness, it was probably like a 10 to 15 minute game on like full court though in McDonough. 
And uh, because I was friends with the coach, he was like, come on the team. And like, I was, I was pretty good at basketball when I was at Georgetown. Like I grew up playing soccer, like never made the basketball team in middle school or high school, but like you go, you play at Gates all the time. And like, you get to be like pretty good. Like you're playing against players after the season's over all that stuff. And like, I, at one point stole a ball from a faculty member who was my, one of my African studies professors, by the way. And then like took it all the way down the court. And then my friend, Matt, who I play basketball with all the time was coming down the wing. And I did this like behind the back path, like, and then he like, kind of like laid it up and like doing that on a basketball court in front of like two or 3000 people, like, and your like friends and like peers, it was like pretty exhilarating. Like <laughs> you felt pretty good. Uh, so that was like a highlight for me. Um, doing that I, they definitely need to bring it back with minute madness is always great i just wish they had an on-campus arena which i know is a cold take at this point but um yeah that was fun well wow, that sounds Fair. really cool we definitely need to bring also COVID. i also uh just to, to be clear i'm not bragging uh the next time i got the ball uh, i dribbled off my foot and it went out of bounds so it wasn't like a great <laughs> great performance it but I, the, the good memory is up there in my head I remember, I think that happening my freshman year. So maybe it's one of the things COVID took away. Yeah, well, we'll have to bring it back. You know, reinserting the tradition, um, Calvin and I can pass on the memory. Good, I hope so. <laughs> well, thank you so much. That's all the questions we have today. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to sit down with the fly and just share with us some of the insights you have. Yeah, of course. Congrats on the podcast, guys. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Fly. You can find us on social media at The Fly Georgetown. If you enjoyed our conversation, make sure to subscribe to The Fly and leave a five-star rating on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or SoundCloud. Our researchers are Kelvin Doe, Zan Hawk, Robin Wang, Kenneth Jackson, and Julian Zeitlinger. Our communications team is Andrea Smith and Austin Culpepper. Our production team is Max Paley and Will Hayes. Emeritus Managing Director is Sam Kehoe. Original theme music is composed by Aidan Ng and Bella Carlucci. And I'm Fiona Gallagher, Managing Director of the Pod. The Fly is brought to you by the Georgetown University Institute of Politics and Public Service and is made possible by the McCourt School of Public Policy. Thanks so much for listening and fly with you soon.